0: This week on Audio Nashville.
1: I'd had about 150 cuts at that point. I was a Grammy nominee. But when I started writing in Nashville, I had to kind of relearn how to write songs for this market. One thing that took me a little while to get used to was the fact that everything in a country song is literal.
0: Audio Nashville talks to Rand Bishop, author of the new book, Making Stuff Up. I'm your host, Marie McDonald. Rand Bishop has a career that spans over 40 years. He's seen the music business from every imaginable angle. He's a Grammy-nominated songwriter with well over 200 cuts by artists such as The Beach Boys, Heart, Cheap Trick, Indigo Girls, Tim McGraw, Richie Havens, and Toby Keith. In his new book, Making Stuff Up, readers learn the lessons of Rand's four-plus decades in the music business. Audio Nashville's Dave McDonald sat down with Rand after his appearance at the 2009 NSAI Spring Training Event in Nashville.
2: Uh, Thanks for being here with us today, Rand. It's a pleasure, Dave. Tell us a little bit about your four decades in the music business. Oh, so I'm going to cover four decades in 300 words or less. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was
1: born a small white child in... in, uh, I was raised in, in Oregon, actually, Oregon and Washington State, and I started playing in bands uh, in high school. I first actually started as a folk musician and uh, learned a little bit about uh, playing guitar and accompanying myself in uh, in the early 60s. Uh, my mentor was a guy named Mark Ellington, who was a left-handed, pot-bellied folk singer of 20. Oh, wow. And... Uh, <laughs> And he was uh, he was a master at it. He taught me a lot about that, and I segued immediately in a couple of years uh, into my first rock band in high school. And I started rocking out at that point and started writing songs basically out of pragmatics. It was kind of a necessity at that point because right. in 1965, if you didn't have a, a you know a Lennon or a McCartney or a uh you know a Jagger or a Richards in your band you know writing your original songs you weren't cool and since I was pretty full of myself at that point in time I, I figured I, I couldn't afford not to be cool so I took it upon myself to become a songwriter and uh so I started writing songs back then and uh, didn't really apply myself to getting good at it uh until i about 15 years later um I was just kind of an intuitive writer and I wrote for the bands that I was in but uh, I, I did find that I had a talent for it and and so along the way uh, other artists started recording my songs I had an opportunity to to write with a bunch of different recording artists I was a recording artist with uh, Electra Records and two bands first band was called Roxy second band was called the Whackers and uh, we had between those two bands, four albums released. Uh, on the third Whackers album, we had our first Top 40 single, and shortly thereafter, David Geffen dropped us from the label, and we broke up. So we finally got ourselves a, a top-flight manager. Norman Schwartz is a kind of a, an abrasive, swashbuckling Brooklyn guy, and uh, Norman, uh, his claim to fame in the past had been that he had... Uh, managed Oliver. Now, Oliver was a one-hit wonder who, who had the hit on the song Good Morning Sunshine from Hair. But uh, Norman was a real good manager in terms of getting our act out there and doing all the necessary things that a, that, that a band has to do to develop their following. And And we were up early in the morning doing drive-time interviews. We were in, in record stores signing our albums all day long before each gig and and it was like going to military school. We, we, we really put us through the paces. But we finished our, what we felt was going to be our defining album, uh, an album called Whack and Roll, which was half recorded live and half in the studio, a double album. And uh, we had a seven-album commitment from Elektra. And in one phone call, Norman Schwartz doomed us to being dropped from the label. Uh, and I don't know what he said to David Geffen. But apparently, from what I heard, David Geffen slammed the phone down and he said, um, and I, I, he said, uh, I don't know who that asshole represents, but I want his act off the label now.
2: Yeah. Now, a seven-record deal, I mean, that's unheard of these days.
1: Well, Jack Holzman signed us to Elektra, and you're absolutely right. Back in those days, there were the labels made a commitment to an artist to develop them. Uh, and it was over a period of, uh, of a commitment to five five to seven records, and they expected by the five, six, seventh albums that maybe you've gone gold and then maybe even platinum. Right. You know, nowadays, the expense of marketing an act is so high of recording a record and marketing uh, that if you don't hit platinum the first time out, you're not a profitable act. So electra's philosophy was uh, do it cheap and do a lot of it. Yeah. And... Uh, and when Jack Holzman sold the label to Kinney Corporation and David Geffen took over, Jack loved our band, and so he made, he renegotiated a deal with a seven-album commitment. Unfortunately, the crack legal crew at Electra found a way to get out of it. So. Yeah, they, they can do that. As soon as Geffen wanted
0: us
2: off, they found a way to do it. Um, could you talk about the politics of co-writing and why co-writing is such an important part of Nashville's music scene? Uh, co-writing has,
1: has two real benefits. One is a creative benefit, uh, not the political benefit, but I'll get to the political benefit in a second. Um, the creative benefit of, of co-writing is, and I have co-written songs uh, since the very first song I ever wrote. Uh, and it's not to say that I don't write on my own. I do, and I encourage every writer to do that as well, because uh, <clears throat> you'll write a different kind of song, and you'll keep your craft sharper if you do write as a solo writer. But um, when two people agree that a lyric and a piece of music are working, I think it's more likely that more of the public will agree. That they'll be more receptive to it. Now, that's not to say that in certain circumstances if the chemistry is not right or the commitment of the writers is not sufficient enough, that you might Make a, write a more mediocre song because it, it's, it becomes kind of creative work by committee you so, know, and committees sure. can make everything pretty, <laughs> pretty mediocre but I think if you have a couple of writers who are really committed to write the best song as, uh, that they possibly can write, that you will probably write a song that's not necessarily a better song but will probably be a more universal song right. so that's on the creative end of things on the political end of things Um, Every writer has their own network of contacts. When you write with another writer, they know people you don't know, you know people they don't know. Their people and your people are kind of going to dare each other to expose that song to more of the world. And since we're in a business of marketing our music, uh, first we have to create it, then we have to record it, and then really, in order to create commerce with our work, We have to market it. So marketing is about getting your product out in front of people. And so if you're co-writing with somebody uh, who has their own network and has the capability of getting that song out there in front of people, that's going to uh, enhance the exposure of your songs. And the more your songs are exposed, the more opportunities that they have to succeed. Also, I encourage writers to become part of what I call a graduating class. In other words, find a core group of people who have talent and are kind of at the same level that you're at, and pool your resources, co-write, perform together, do writers in the rounds, uh, exchange and barter your services. Like, one of you guys may be a great singer, one of you guys may be a great guitar player, one one may have engineering chops, uh, one may be... A, a whiz uh, with with uh, with computers or whatever, right. but pull your resources because there's a possibility that one of those guys is going to get signed to a major publishing or a recording contract, and the next time you do your gig out at Douglas Corner or or, or uh, another songwriter club, their people are going to come in to see him, right. and they're going to see you too, right. and they're going to, you're going to be associated with their success, and um, in the case of my list, which is my most recognizable copyright my co-writer was a guy named tim james and tim uh was still out there battling it out uh in, in at the turn of the millennium uh, when when sagebrush was blowing across 16th avenue and, and for rent signs were everywhere and companies were closing and and uh, uh uh left and right it was financially it was a very difficult time for music row uh and he signed to Toby Keith's new publishing company, Paddock Music. Well, he, Tim only had about five or six songs that were available at that point. And those are what we call Schedule A songs, songs that go on, that are available, publishing is available when, when, uh, when you sign a publishing deal. And my list was one of those songs. A demo that I had cut in, on a hard drive recorder in my attic of my house. And uh... So Toby Keith heard that song. It wasn't pitched to him. He became the co-publisher of that song. And he heard the song and he thought, that's a hit song. And he started uh, pitching that song to other artists that were on the bill with him. Sawyer Brown and other acts that were on the bill with him. And they didn't respond to the song. And Toby, uh, not being the most modest man in the world, (laughs) uh, was determined that this song was a hit. And he said, well, if those guys aren't going to cut it, then I will. And so he did. And, and the rest is history. And the rest it? is history. It, the song became uh, five-week number one. It was the most played song on country radio in 2002. And to date has made over $2 million as a copyright. Had I not co-written that song with Tim James, had Tim James not exploited his network and found this publishing deal with, with this
2: particular artist... That song would still be collecting dust. I guarantee right. you at this point. You hear a lot of stories about songs that have been around for five, ten years sometimes before they even get see the light of day. Well, so. yeah,
1: I mean, to, uh, my list was two years old before Toby heard it. Right. Uh, and uh, I've had songs, and one in particular that was fourteen years old when it was recorded. Well. Wow. And that was a song that the demo singer, uh, when I re-demoed the song about five years after I'd I'd written it. Uh, he he loved it, and he said, if I ever get a record deal, I'm going to cut this song. And by God, he got a record deal, and he finally cut it. But it was about nine years later when he did. But, you know, Mark Allen Springer, who's a uh, CMA song, song of the year recipient, uh, says, good things happen to good songs. I'm not one of the people, and I and I do have a lot of friends in this business who are, so we say, who are volume writers? You know, writing more songs is better. I think writing a core group of great songs is much more important than writing more songs, uh, because it's so competitive. I mean, when you write a song in this market, you're not only competing against the best songwriters in the world, but you're competing against a core group of songwriters whose whose names mean something. Right. Who, and, and there's always the that wise Jeffrey Steele. Exactly. Was, yeah. I mean, I call those guys the shit-don't-stink writers. <laughs> and, and it's not to say that they write shit songs. They don't. They write great songs. But your songs have to be better than theirs right. and or more, or in some way more unique or have a, have a, have a, uh, a more unique point of view um, than theirs or have some production qualities to your demos that are just to stand out. You know, they have to stand out in order for them to get through the scrutiny of the many people that have to say yes right. along the way when an artist finds a song that coincides with their point of view that's when I think they get excited about it and also I think an artist is always looking for a new way to say something that they may have said before or maybe a new thing to say right. and uh, it's interesting that what we come up against time and time again when we're pitching our songs in Nashville is you have gatekeepers who are there for the sole purpose of saying no and no is usually couched in these words. Oh, he wouldn't say that, or she wouldn't say that.
2: Right.
1: Um, that's one of the reasons why pitching songs is, is probably one of the least productive ways to get your songs recorded. Writing with the artist is that's, the most efficient that's, way. That's a great way. <laughs> because when you, when you sit in the room with an artist and you listen to what they care about, and what, they want, what kind of subject matter they want to involve themselves in, and what kind of songs they want to perform, uh, then you can help them craft those kinds of songs. The, the savvy artist, the artist who really knows themselves, is looking for material that really speaks from a really true emotional place. And it's hard to know what that is, but if the writer's coming from an honest, emotional place, there are artists out there who feel that same thing. Right. And there are there are also people out there in the public who feel that same thing. So every song needs to be rooted in some kind of honest, uh, sincere, emotional place.
2: Right.
1: Not to, you, Don't write a song just because you think it's a clever idea. Right. Write it because it's resonant with you. When you have long, sustained notes in a song, you want to do them on a pleasant vowel sound. Right. Uh A's and I's are, are really good vowel sounds to sing long. E's are not. Not, no. No. Uh, if you have a word in a song that is meant to be a short word, like stick, don't sustain that note, you know, for eight beats. Yeah. Stick doesn't work. So there are things that, the way the internal rhyming works, the way the vowel sounds, uh, work in the, in the phrases of the song, uh, and the simplicity and the directness of the language, the
2: conversationalness of the language. Right. That's particularly important in country music, conversational lyrics. Um, sometimes pop can get away with different uh, esoteric phrases. And Absolutely. Things, but country is pretty much got to be between the eyes. And, yes. And, <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I first came to Nashville
1: uh, 16 years ago, I had had quite a bit of success, journeyman success, in the rock and pop market, Um, having worked with Heart, Cheap Trick, Beach Boys, um, Indigo Girls, um, to name a few, uh, Vanilla Fudge, Peter Noon. And uh, I'd had about 150 cuts at that point. I was a Grammy nominee. But when I started writing in Nashville, I had to kind of relearn how to write songs for this market. One thing that took me a little while to get used to was the fact that everything in a country song is literal. There's nothing that's... In, meaning in that. There's no imagery. If you talk about a river, it's a river. It's wet and it's flowing, you know? Whereas in a pop song, a river can mean many, many things. It can be the image of a, a, a stream of emotion using any kind of convoluted language uh, or highfalutin language uh, (laughs) is really frowned upon. You really have a very... That's the interesting thing about writing in the country genre. You have a very limited vernacular, musically and lyrically. You have maybe only two or 300 words that you can possibly use that can be uh, utilized in your lyric. You only have 12... Uh, tones on a scale to work with and in the country genre those are there's only you know, a, a simple number of chords that you can use More and it's become much more sophisticated certainly in the last 15 years uh, and more influenced by pop uh, writing um, but and I don't say sophisticated in that it makes it better but in that, it, that, that the country market accepts uh, poppier ways of writing uh, because country music, quite honest, honestly, is now, and I know a lot of people don't like to hear this, but it's now just another genre of pop music. It's no longer a genre in and of itself. It has its own radio stations, it has its own set of artists, but in reality, kids are driving around with their iPods and they've got black-eyed peas and... Uh, and, Gretchen Wilson. And, and Dashboard <laughs> yeah. Confessional and Gretchen, <laughs> Gretchen Wilson and, and Toby Keith on their iPods, you know. And there's no stigma about that. Uh, music fans w- just like what they like. Right. You know, and, and, and they're if it exposed happens,
2: to much more music.
1: Yeah, and, um, and, and they're yeah. exposed at the same rate. Right. You know, there's no regional, regionalism to music other than Texas and uh, a couple other pockets
2: right. of music. Well, um, in the book you mentioned that you like, and we'll talk about process for a minute, you like to start writing the chorus first. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: The chorus is the most dynamic part of of the song, uh, ideally. In other words, it has the highest and most intense notes. Uh, It has the most dynamic and memorable language. And so I feel that if you start by creating at least a scale of a chorus you'll know what you're building to with your verse right. you'll also know what language you can't use in your verse because you don't want to repeat that and... right key words in a song should be I mean the key hook words of the song uh, should be saved for one application right. and you should you know other than you know generic words like love or uh you know the, the uh, you know, articles. You know that, that bridge right. one, one word with another. Um, but the key verbs and and nouns of a song should only be used once. So once you establish this high, the highest dynamic of a song, which would be the chorus, then you know what you're building to. And when you go back to your verse, you usually want that verse to be somewhat more sedate in a lower vocal register. And you'll also want to know how to change the phrasing of your verse so that the chorus stands out.
2: But uh, well, there's no hard and fast rule, but there are some very yeah. I mean, there there's things that are more successful than others over overall, I guess. That's, there are I mean, key that,
1: there are key tips to yeah, keep in mind, right. and 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 there's as you say, there there are no hard and fast rules, but craft is is based on certain. Successful principles that have been used for years and years and years.
2: Right, and the way we've been trained to listen to pop music and country music is also a factor. That's, that's a
1: very, very good point. Yeah. Uh, we become used
2: to hearing certain
1: qualities in a popular song. And when you provide the listener with something that sounds familiar to them and yet has exactly. a new point of view, then you've got something and it's built on a solid concept uh, and it's well crafted, um, then you've got something that um, has an opportunity, you know, has a better opportunity to succeed in the marketplace. If you, you know, I, I equate songwriting to it's a craft, it's not an art. If I were to design a chair and construct a chair, what would I be doing? I would be trying, first of all, to create something that had a certain aesthetic quality to it that sure. looked good in a room right I would want to make that chair comfortable for people to put their butts in time and time right, again right and I want to make that chair functional I'd want right. it to last for years and years and years and you so, want somebody to say that's a chair when they see it not. because they, they want to recognize everything? it as a chair and that's part of the aesthetic you know the first the first quality that we right. want so that's kind of what we're trying to do with a song we're trying to we're trying to create something that's first of all recognizable as a, song. as a song. And there are certain qualities that we expect. We expect it to have a usually a verse and a chorus or a verse and a refrain uh, to end the verse. Uh, we expect it to have certain kind of length of sections, you know. Usually a verse and a chorus is anywhere from 45 seconds to a minute and 15 seconds or a minute and 30 seconds. Um, so there's certain recognizable qualities that people expect to here in a popular song, and so we try to adhere to those things, and it's still at the same time do something fresh with it, just like a furniture maker would try to do it with a with a chair
2: design, right? Maybe a new fabric or something yeah. different, a different. Some little twist that makes it makes it uh, unique and stand out where should new writers go for feedback first of all to, to get honest I mean of course we know Aunt Sally's going to love it but yeah. it may not be the best <laughs> choice <laughs> but, well, well, unless I, she's a music I, publisher then maybe you can listen to Aunt Sally <laughs> but, I, I have to admit yeah. that,
1: that for many many years I was very reluctant to, to look for feedback on my writing myself uh, it's not my nature mm-hmm. I'm a very kind of private contemplative writer and you know the fear is, what if they don't like it? You know, what will I do then? Uh, or, uh, you know, can I trust somebody to, to really, you know, give me any kind of input that's going to be constructive? Um, but particularly since I've I've lived and worked in Nashville, I found that feedback is critical to writing great songs, and I believe in rewriting uh, to. to a, an insane extent. Right. Uh, so we go back to what we talked about earlier, which is that songs are about communication. If there's something about your work that's not communicating, it's not the fault of the listener. It's not the fault of the industry that they're not res- that's not responding right. to the song. It's the f- it's and, and I'm, I'm not saying it should be anybody's fault. It just means that that the song needs more work. If that's what you're if what you're trying to do is to create commerce with your music, uh, then rewriting or getting feedback and applying the feedback that resonates with you
2: to your work and rewriting is critical to the process. Right. Back to the furniture uh, analogy, if the client doesn't like that fabric right. pattern, then why not? Or maybe the legs pattern. are too a little
1: too long for right. most people to sit in it right. or why you know that
2: kind of thing. Uh, and and there's there's a there's a a
1: term that I heard when I was, I was uh, the vice president of the board of directors of the Nashville Film Festival, and there was a producer that came to the festival and did a seminar, and he said, Don't be afraid to kill your babies.
2: Yeah.
1: And, which is a horrible image, but <laughs> particularly being a father of three children. But what, what I find when I look back over my body of work, there are songs through the years that I thought for sure. We're gonna get a great response, but didn't. And with some perspective over the years, looking back at those songs, I realized there's something convoluted about those songs. There's something, I went to an odd chord change or I extended a section when I should have cut it out completely, and usually those are the parts of the songs that I loved the most right. at the time. So I, I really urge writers to get their ego out of the way, get their pride out of their, out of the way, because our songs are about communication. There are a lot of ways to get professional, quality, constructive feedback. Uh, Obviously the best way is to be able to meet directly with music publishers and or song pluggers uh, here in Nashville uh, or in other music capitals of the world to find out how the response is. And I urge people to do that as much one-on-one as possible. I also urge people to observe body language when when people are listening to their songs. My tendency is to close my eyes and to get very internal uh, when I play songs. But I have to fight that, even when I'm playing them on tape or or, uh, or on a recording. Because you can learn much more about how people are responding by watching them listen to your song than you can by what they say afterwards. And there are very a very select few people who really have the ability to listen to a song once and give you intelligent, constructive feedback on it.
2: You uh, you have a service like that, don't you? Or that you
1: or Thank you for bringing that up, up, Dave. Dave. Uh, my website, which is www.makingstuffup.net, um, provides a song coaching service. And it's not the only one. Uh, Song U has uh, a service similar Jason Bloom.com has a, uh, a s- similar service Barbara, Barbara Cloyd has a similar service uh, I do believe that mine is probably the best value uh, and at this point in time you know who your coach is it's me Right. <laughs> and uh, I have some really satisfied writers um, who are benefiting from Uh, basically what I call improving your song craft one song at a time and uh, it's an evaluation process that gives the writer a very, very, very specific input as to where their song is succeeding and where it needs improvement and always giving very specific constructive ideas on how to do that um a lot of writers are reluctant to get feedback, to apply it. I don't think that you should apply every bit of feedback that you get. Sure. I think you should. We all have kind of lingering doubts about our work. Uh, you know, the third line of the second verse, I'm not sure whether it's working. You know, let's see if I can get it past this guy or, you know. And uh, when you get a couple of comments on those things, that's when you really know you need to address them. And once again, getting that ego and the pride out of the way, going back and doing the rewrites uh, until you get it right. Until you get, until you have the effect with that song that you really are striving for. It's Consistent. Um, don't try to write to please your plugger. Right. Write to please yourself. Right. But know that if you're not communicating what it is you want to communicate with your song, emotionally, in particular. But, but lyrically and musically as well, right. that you need more, you need to apply more work to it.
2: Sure, and playing, playing songs out sometimes, back to your body language again, you can tell a lot if there is somebody listening at the writer's night and you see that they're kind yes. of like, start looking at their watch or mm-hmm. wander off and that kind of thing.
1: Body language is key. It's really, really critical. But be careful of feedback that you get verbally from your friends after your gig. Because they'll always tell you they loved your songs. And there are certain kinds of songs that always get a good response. Right. Funny songs, right. irreverent songs, songs that are soulful shouters, you right. know, that, that have a lot of rasp in the vocal and have a lot of enthusiasm. They will always get a positive response from an audience. But they might not be your best and most viable copyrights. Uh, you know, Some of the songs that, that an audience uh, doesn't quite get the first time around may be your best material. Right. Um, so you got to be careful about where you get your feedback from and how you get it and how you how you, how you
2: respond to it. So I think the takeaway from that is there's a lot of different places you can get feedback from and you should if you see a common theme developing then it might be something that you might want to pay attention exactly. to. Exactly.
1: Right. And particularly if that common theme addresses one of those lingering concerns that you have in the back of your your subconscious where you go I'm not sure whether this is working and I've battled with this a hundred times and I don't know whether I've got there yet you know if something you know actually applies to that that's you know for certain that's something you need to work yeah I mean we walk out of those writing appointments really excited about what we've just done you know but we lack
2: perspective on it you get in a bubble I think when you're when you're writing and you've been working on something and been crafting it, yes, yeah. uh, slaving away, building a boat in your basement, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and,
1: and it's important to step away from it, uh, play it for some people, and then return to it with some fresh, with a fresh point of view. And you know, uh, I, I spend as much time as is necessary to make a song as good as it can be. Right. And uh, not to say that that I succeed with that every time out, but I try to get as close to it as I can. And part of that process uh, is that stepping away process, reevaluating, uh, listening to your work tapes and your recordings uh, on a different day. And you learn a lot about your own writing that way. And then th- having the opportunity to play it for people who really have some knowledge uh, and can really give you specifically where it's working, where it needs work, right. uh, and where it needs more work and more rewriting. Um, that's really an, all part of the process that even the most successful writers put themselves through, and, and that's how we improve our craft, that's how we write the best songs we can write. That, that's why I encourage people, particularly on my website and my, the members of my website, to uh, submit their songs in, as a work in progress. Uh, I have a lot of people who've, who submit finished demos that they've invested considerable amount of resources in, and uh, whether or not they're going to be willing to go back and rework that song at that point, you know, that's their decision. But what I try to do is to give people the opportunity to um, improve the song itself before they make that investment. And uh, it's it's so competitive in Nashville uh, and in the, in the songwriting world at large. Uh, and, I, and I don't Operate just in the country music market. You know, sure. I've, I have a background that, that extends beyond that, and certainly came from the the rock, rock, uh, and folk, uh, alternative folk uh, part of the business as well. Um, but to be willing to accept feedback at a at a stage at which you can actually apply that feedback a little bit right. more conveniently and less expensively, or you've mastered that, the record, yeah. I guess. <laughs> uh, and you know, it, it would be a shame to to know that your song could have been a better song when you've already invested it, that thousand dollars right. in that demo or,
2: or that master recording. You know. Uh, yeah, and if you um, and you talk in your book about the demo process, and like I say, I'd recommend people to read that chapter too. Um, it you talk about the you know that that there's a lot of tools available now that weren't available 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even. When when I first started
1: being exposed to digital recording. I remember the Fairlight, you know, back in the the mid-80s. For only (laughs) $150,000, you could have a digital workstation with a LED that was about six inches (laughs) by six inches and eight, count them, eight eight tracks of digital audio, 16-bit digital audio, you know. And it only cost $150,000, and that was how Sting and Peter Gabriel were making their records, you know. Well, now anybody can have that same technology at uh, equal quality for $2,500, $3,000, right, you know, yeah. in your own home. So the cost of a demo session, uh, you know, if you recorded uh, four or five songs uh, in Nashville on a three-hour session, you could buy an entire home recording studio. So I really urge everybody to do that uh, and uh, and learn how to do it and learn how to make great demos that there are
2: There are books. There are people who will teach you how to do it. It's not that difficult. It really is Okay. Well, before we leave, though, uh, tell us a little bit about your hit with Toby Keats, My List. Um, How did that song come about? Well, Tim and I uh, had been
1: writing together for a number of years. Uh, Tim is a Murfreesboro, Tennessee uh, product. He'd lived out in L.A. for a number of years. But uh, we'd been writing together for maybe four or five years at that point. So we had a pretty good catalog of stuff. We trusted each other, um, and uh, but we'd never had any success together. As a matter of fact, Tim had only had one cut as a writer. I'd had was closing in on 200 at that point. Uh, but uh, he's a very, very bright writer and always has great ideas and knows the market really well uh, because he's a native of the South and he knows the language and. So he came in one day, and we were writing up in my little attic up in my house, and he said, I make a list of things to do every day. Let's write a song about it. And that's how it started. And contrary to my preaching about writing the chorus first, (laughs) I sat down with that particular song and started finger picking, and the first line of the song just spilled out under an old brass paperweight is my list of things to do today. And that's how we got started with the song. The song was written pretty much in one sitting uh, with a lunch break. Uh, We made one little tweak on it lyrically the following day on the phone. I recorded a demo of the song on an 8-track hard drive recorder in in that very attic, played all the instruments instruments myself, Um, sang it myself, didn't cost me a dime, so that's another reason why you need to need to invest in a home studio because had it not been for the fact that I had made that investment and made the effort to make that demo, Toby wouldn't have heard the song uh, and it never would have become a hit. But uh, when I played that song out uh, other songwriters would always respond positively to it. Um, But really there were no publishers or artists or producers who really responded to it. It was on a comp CD that I gave out around town. and uh, The only artist who showed any interest in it was a guy whose memorial service I attended last Saturday, uh, and Dan Seals. It all just goes to show you that for any, any song, regardless of the quality of the song, to, become, to get recorded and to become a hit song, there needs to be a tremendous amount of serendipity involved. It's not just crafting a great song that makes a hit. There are a lot of stars that have to fall into alignment. And in order for that to happen for you, uh, you need to develop your song craft. You need to learn uh, how to accept and apply feedback. Uh, You need to develop relationships in in the business so that there are other people who benefit from your success. Uh, And... um, you need to learn to make a great song demos, and you need to stick at it. Uh, a lot of ups and downs, uh, but the only way to, con- to, to con- continue, continue ensuring that you do have an opportunity to succeed is to stick with it. And uh, it's a blessing to be a writer. And the other thing is, uh, the wonderful thing about what I learned about Nashville when I first came here, is there's absolutely no negative stigma about doing something else to make a living. Right. If you have to work at Starbucks or if you have to wait tables or if you have to work at, at, at Walmart or, or Target or, 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 or anything or, or drive a cab or, or lay bricks or, or right. and, and, and your passion is writing, call yourself a songwriter,
2: right. a songwriter that works a construction job. Right. And there's successful songwriters that you know that still work a full-time job. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> i got a, a good buddy who's still plumbing,
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, and he's written uh, number one song. So.
2: Okay. Well, the book is called uh, Making Stuff Up. I highly recommend it, and uh, it's available at makingstuffup.net. Is that That's correct, correct. Uh, Rand? And we also will have a link uh, to that uh, site from the Audio Nashville site, too, for you. So uh, please stop by and visit us. Uh, thanks again, Rand. And this is Dave with Audio Nashville.
0: For more information about the show or to listen to previous shows, visit our website at audionashville.com or email us at info at audionashville.com. Stop by and leave questions or comments for us or our guests. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Audio Nashville.